0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Taha Lokhandwala and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Adrian Ash, Director of Research at Bullion Vault. Investment trusts are an independent board which can, if necessary, fire the asset management company which runs it. But this week, something rather more unusual has taken place – an asset manager has effectively fired a fund. Emma, can you tell us a bit more?
1: As you say, Leonora, this is very unusual. What's happened is Investca Perpetual has resigned from managing Investcate Perpetual Enhanced Income, which is a, a bond trust. And it's run by veteran bond managers Paul Causer, Paul Reed, who are co-heads of fixed interest at Investca Perpetual, very experienced managers, and they also ran it with Rhys Davies. But basically, they've decided that they're no longer going to be running this fund.
0: Why has Invesco Perpetual resigned?
1: Well, they haven't actually given a explanation for why they've resigned from managing the trust. But the analysts I've spoken to say that really it comes down to fees. And the board of the trust had said that they were in negotiations with Invesco as to um, the management fee. And then a few weeks later, we get this notification that they're going to be resigning. So it, it does look like um, this is a dispute about fees. So
0: what does Investical Perpetual Enhanced Income currently charge?
1: Um, The current OCF ongoing charge figure is 1.17% but crucially it also has a performance fee and this is payable at a rate of 20% of outperformance on the first £80 million of shareholders funds and after that there's a 10% over a hurdle of liable plus plus 1% and the performance fee also needs to the managers also need to exceed seven percent for the year. So basically, you know, it's it's a performance so fee. So what's, Working what's it out the actual, to quite. yeah, what's the actual calcul- ongoing
0: charge of the performance fee in then?
1: So altogether, last year the performance fee, including the OCF, including the performance fee, was two point one six percent. Okay, so rather a lot for a bond fund, I have Definitely. to say. Mm. Uh, why does its board want to cut its fees? And I actually spoke to the chairman of the board and he said that it was due to a number of reasons. One, the recognition that performance fees have become much more unpopular with investors. Also, an awareness of the increased focus on fees within the industry. And the FCA has been very um, vocal about how they want managers to, um, and boards to focus on getting value for money for investors. And he also mentioned the outlook for the asset class that this trust invests in. Um, which is mostly European high-yield bonds. And um, the chairman said that um, this is a market that has done very well over the last few years. And as a result, the yields on offer are much lower than they have been. Um, Of course, over time, that means that um, the new issues that the fund is investing in, returns are going to be more moderate. And with this quite high fixed cost Basis that will eat into a greater proportion of the returns the funds make. And so they wanted to reduce the fees to improve the dividend cover and improve the sustainability of the income that the trust pays out.
0: And um, what about the independent analysts? Um, what's their take on the level of fees?
1: Um, well, they definitely acknowledge that the fees are high. But actually, a few of the ones I spoke to said that this could actually be appropriate for a trust of this size, which is about £120 million market cap. And one analyst said that he felt that the board may have been a little short-sighted in this, in that they focused so much at the cost of reducing fees and actually potentially lost a very good manager who's done a good job of running the trust.
0: But at the end of the day, you could go and uh, buy uh, a bond fund run by its managers that's a lot cheaper. Okay. Now, will losing Invesco Perpetual as a manager be detrimental to investors in investable perpetual enhanced income?
1: Possibly I mean performance has been very good so the net asset value returns over three years has been 20 percent 23 percent over five years has been 45 percent and that's actually double um, the average made by other listed debt funds you know over the same period so performance has been very good I mean, the other thing to say about um, Investor Perpetual's decision to resign is that they've got a 12-month notice period. So this isn't going to happen immediately. The managers are still going to be in place for the next 12 months.
0: Who's going to run it in 12 months when Investor Perpetual goes?
1: I'm not quite sure about that yet. The board is obviously going to... Um, recruit for another manager to replace Invesco and actually so far they've said in the you know less than week that this has happened that they received quite a lot of interest from other managers that could potentially take over and so The board says that it's important to say to investors that they're not planning any dramatic changes to the way that the trust will be run. And they understand that investors want to hold this trust because of its high income.
0: Thank you, Emma. And you can see her full interview with Investco Perpetual Enhanced Income's chairman on the website. Many investors have an allocation to mainstream assets such as equities, bonds and cash. But some investors also hold alternative assets alongside these. And a popular option over the years has been gold. Adrian, why do some investors have an allocation to gold?
2: Well, gold tends to do well when other things do badly. Uh, And it tends to do best when people lose confidence in central banks. So if you look at gold's famous bull markets in the 1970s and, again, the early part of the 21st century, basically you had both of those things happening at once. You had equity markets in freefall in the 70s because of inflation, of course, and and stagflation then. And then, obviously, um, central banks failing to address that inflation and getting behind the curve. You then had a similar situation in terms of equities. Obviously, you had the dot-com crash of 2000 and then going into the financial crash uh, around 2008. Um, And again, people lost confidence in central bankers. Now, why gold when people lose confidence in central bankers? Well, gold doesn't do anything. I mean, gold doesn't pay any income. Gold doesn't pay any dividends. It doesn't distribute any earnings. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't even rust. Okay, But it's been used to store value, in all ages and all cultures throughout history. So you could say that well gold is just a, you know it's a totem or whatever but at the end of the day you know we are humans and and this is what humans have you know always turned to in a crisis. So it's kind of seen as the ultimate backstop if you like. It's nobody's liability. It's nobody else's credit to deliver on. Um you're not looking for growth with gold. You're looking really as a say a backstop. Kind of, uh, so, you know, it's, it's really about portfolio diversification for most investors. If you think there's a crisis coming, then you may want to increase that allocation. Um, but in the main, it's about saying, okay, if things do go badly, then here is something which isn't correlated, doesn't tend to move with all the other stuff that I've got, such as shares and bonds.
0: Okay, so why gold rather than other metals? Because there are a lot of other metals and and some of them are quite precious too.
2: Sure. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at silver, platinum, palladium, the big difference there for the precious metals is that none of them have the history of gold as being that ultimate backstop. You could say silver was used as money before gold and and, and beyond it as well. You know, at the end of the gold standard, we still had silver coinage in the UK and obviously in the States through to the 60s. Um, But the difference there is that they are primarily industrial. You know, 60% of silver demand, end-use annually, goes to industrial use. For gold, that's less than 10% now. Bonding wire... I mean, there's more people in the world with gold in their pocket today than there ever has been, but it's currently in a tiny microchip in their iPhone. Um, Same with platinum and palladium. Obviously, the PGMs are used very heavily in the auto industry. Um, in catalysts to reduce emissions. And again, that means that those metals, and similarly with the base metals, of course, copper, etc., you are then exposed to the economic cycle because if the economy turns to south, then demand for those metals to go into as an industrial input is likely to fall as well. So what you saw during the financial crisis, particularly through 2008, where you saw silver crash from its peak uh, in the march, through, all through the Lehman's crisis. Gold did drop. Gold fell very steeply at first, particularly in dollar terms as, as the dollar rallied. But what you did see was that demand for gold was surging at that same time because suddenly wealth managers, private banks, thought, oh, my God, this really is a systemic crisis. There really is a risk that banks won't be there in the morning. What is the one asset which doesn't rely on a bank being there? Credit, etc. Uh And that, you know, that choice was gold.
0: Just picking up actually on the platinum and the palladium, if they are used in things like catalytic converters and let's say a shift to cleaner energy, um, with increasing noise and that government legislation coming in, might they not increase in popularity? Um, or
2: Certainly, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's double-edged, I think, mm. for the PGMs, platinum and palladium, the platinum group metals. Um, platinum is primarily used in diesel engine catalysts and palladium primarily in gasoline, petrol. Mm. Um, so what you've actually seen in recent years is the platinum price has fallen below the palladium price. It's, it's since come back a little bit, but this is you know, a very rare event because the market has decided that diesel is on the way out, whereas gasoline isn't. For the near term, longer term, palladium is far more exposed, actually, to the to the, you know, the, the eventual death of the internal combustion engine because it's more heavily used. It doesn't really find any other uses. Platinum has a vast range of other uses. Platinum is a very versatile metal. Uh, and one use which is growing and which I think may come to the fore as an investment theme in, in, in coming years is hydrogen fuel cells. So Japan is making the 2020 Olympics the hydrogen games. That's what they want to call it. They did the same in 1964 with the Shinkansen bullet trains. You know, they basically built out infrastructure for the bullet trains then. And platinum is what you use as a catalyst in fuel cells. Uh, so as part of the global powertrain, I think that could become a, you know a bigger story in years ahead.
0: But um, turning back to gold, you mentioned that it's used traditionally to diversify and, I suppose, mitigate downside when things are going all over the place. Um, But is now a time, perhaps, when investors might need that kind of protection?
2: Well, it really depends on what you think the outlook is for other assets. I mean, gold by itself... You know, there's nothing about the gold market in itself which really moves prices. Gold prices really, and, and this is really what happens uh, when you look at the global picture for demand. It, it, you know, in, industrial demand, as I say, is about 10%. Jewelry demand is then about 40%. Investment demand is now about 35 40%. Um, central banks have been buying over recent years as well to make up the difference. And really what moves prices is investment demand. Uh, and that is when particularly large investment Houses, institutions start chasing prices higher. That's what we saw from 2000 through to 2012. So the question really is, well, why were they doing that then and why might they do it again? And I think it would be because of anxiety about, say, overstretched equity markets, um, the outlook for fixed income assets. I mean, obviously, if interest rates are on the rise, I'm not convinced they are at the moment, and certainly not in real terms after inflation, then you would expect bond prices to come down. um, And that will obviously hurt you know, the large, the, well, the huge historic holdings of, of, of government debt in particular, which um, investors now have. So you might look at gold as being, you know, an alternative to that. So it's really about your view on, on other things. Um, mm-hmm. Is now a good time? Well, what's interesting at the moment, what we're seeing on bullion vault and what you're really seeing in retail investment demand, particularly in the US, is actually very low levels of interest from private investors. Uh, retail investors are at the moment really just not interested in gold. Um, there's not; there's very low volatility in the price, so you're not seeing a great deal of trading there. Um, if you look at Google search volumes, which is something I track uh, for the phrase buy gold, because that's a pretty good indicator of investor interest in the metal, that's actually uh, the lowest it's been since before the financial crisis now. So you've really seen that whole bull market and top of 2008 through 2012 It's really been eroded now and really come off in terms of investor interest. You've actually seen some selling in the US of coin and small bar from retail investors. And I think it's worth contrasting that against what we are seeing f- amongst hedge funds, amongst um, other wealth managers now. There is a, a, a revived interest in gold from money managers, I think because of the kind of concerns that you mentioned about, you know, you know, is now a good time? Yeah, probably. A good time to buy insurance is when you don't need it. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, if you're thinking about maybe equities are a bit overstretched, maybe I don't want to put any more, you know, if you, if you have some cash come in and you think, well, what am I going to do with this? Do you really want more equity exposure at these prices? Do you really want more bond exposure at these prices? Is there something that maybe your portfolio is currently lacking? So if you look at it in terms of insurance, then the question becomes, well, how much is enough? and how much is too much. Uh, one very large trust client of Bullion Vault holds about 1% of its total uh, financial portfolio in Bullion with us, gold Bullion. Financial advisors typically won't recommend gold because it doesn't pay an income, but those who do might talk about 5% as being a sensible allocation. Our customers in the main, uh, they hold probably between 10 and 20%, typically. Our typical customer is about £10,000 sterling, invested in gold and or silver and platinum Uh, and that represents somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of of their self-directed what they're managing themselves perhaps over and above their actual retirement you know uh, an off-the-shelf pension product.
0: You mentioned that um, there's not necessarily a great deal of interest people are possibly even selling so is gold at the moment a cost-effective way to buy protection I mean where's the gold price relative to its history and um, how does it compare value wise to other assets?
2: Well, gold, like crude oil and, and most of the commodities, is, is typically quoted in dollars, and that's what people tend to track. But of course, for you, you know, for investors, Chronicle readers, and, and your listeners, you know, the sterling price is what matters here. You know, the dollar price is currently knocking. It has it ended Q1 uh, with its best, its strongest uh, quarterly finish in five years. Um, And I think if you look at it on a – I'm not a technical analyst, but if you look at the charts, you know, gold in dollar terms is is looking right for a breakout. What about the sterling price, however? Well, sterling price starting from – if we roll back to just just before the millennium when Gordon Brown famously announced he was going to sell half of the UK's gold reserves, that was at a price of £150 an ounce. Today it's at £950 an ounce, basically more than doubling in the last 10 years. Um, It got to a peak in 2011 when you had the English riots, you had the Eurozone debt crisis, you had the US debt downgrade, it got to a peak then of about £1,200. So we're below that. We're also below the peak hit after Brexit. The result of the Brexit referendum saw gold prices in sterling move 22% in six hours, peaking at about 1050 So we're about £100 off the Brexit top uh, and about £50 above the low since then. So at the moment, it's not particularly exciting. It's, it's, it is cheaper than it has been, um, on an historical level, you could say, well, at the turn of the millennium, gold is massively undervalued, clearly. And you know, and, and I think that was a big part of the story from 2000 through to the financial crisis. Um, so at the moment, yeah, I think, relatively speaking, it, it offers pretty good value. And as I say, with with interest being where it is, yes, pension, be, um, some institutional investors are you know, looking at gold. Again, you've seen ETF holdings amongst um, regulated funds in the States have been rising. But you know, interest isn't huge at the moment. It's certainly not overinvested by any by any measure.
0: Okay. Now, um, I think, as you mentioned, EV price can move around quite a bit. So, um, I suppose you can't say that it's um, necessarily low volatile. So, on that note, what are the risks of having exposure to gold? And what sort of investors would you say it's um, not suitable for?
2: In our experience on Bullion Vault, I mean, we've got what, 71,000 users worldwide now? About half of those are in the UK. Uh, we don't query our database and ask them a lot of intrusive questions. But in our experience, these people tend to be um, relatively settled in terms of their savings. You know, they already have equities. They have bonds. They probably have a pension product. Um, so it's really about having something else. So if you're looking, you know, if you're a, a, you know, a, a first-time saver, then probably gold isn't something that you need because you don't have anything else to protect yet. You know, if you view gold as insurance, well, then you need something to insure. So in our experience, I mean, our typical customer is in his 40s. Anecdotally, you know, a lot of finance professionals, a lot of IT professionals, they like, you know, they see our website, they like our business. But the risks that that you have, there is volatility, or there can be at the moment it's actually very low um, on a daily basis. But the volatility typically is about the same as equities on a daily basis. Um, The risks that you face in gold, because it doesn't pay an income, and because it has this huge 5,000-year history of being used as a store of value, it is very sensitive to interest rates and interest rate expectations. So if you look at post the peak, the financial crisis, gold prices fell very steeply in 2013. Q2 of 2013, they fell 25%, okay, which is a, a dramatic drawdown by, you know, for anybody. Um, and that was basically because hedge funds and all those private wealth managers who had got into gold during the crisis all decided they needed to get to the exit because the US Federal Reserve had started to talk about ending, tapering its QE programme. What would come next was higher interest rates. Now, what's interesting is that the Fed finally began to raise its interest rates at the end of 2015, which is when the gold price bottomed. The Fed has since raised, uh, and the gold price has gone higher with it. So the issue there is, in fact, about inflation. Gold is very sensitive to interest rates and interest rate expectations, um, but it's also very sensitive to inflation expectations, and it's the two that matter. So if you think real interest rates are likely to go higher, if you think the Bank of England is going to get ahead of the inflation curve and raise UK interest rates faster than inflation, then gold is likely not to do very well. The obvious, of course, is that if you think the Bank of England is going to stay behind the curve, as the Fed have done, even if it does start raising, then gold is quite likely to do well.
0: Okay. Now, if you one of those investors for whom it might make sense to have gold in your portfolio, how can you get to it? How can you access it?
2: Well, I mean, it's, there's very many ways. When you come down to it, it is a you know it's a physical, uh, it's an element, chemical element, uh, number seventy nine on the periodic table. There are very many ways that you can access either the metal or its price. If you're just looking for price exposure. Gold as that kind of ultimate redoubt, that ultimate insurance policy, well, the obvious one there is perhaps coins that you stick in a sock and bury somewhere in the garden. Um, that tends to be quite an expensive way of doing it um, because you're basically talking about a lot of fabrication cost. You're talking about an awful lot of um, shipping and transport, storage, marketing, and everything else. So, you know, the spread on coins. The difference between what you pay to buy and what you get back when you sell can run as high as 10 15% on popular bullion coins there are of course also rare coins but that's a very different market that's what you're talking about the numismatic value of you know ancient coins or whatever it may be that's a very different market and of course that's really about the collectible value of the particular coins different markets how
0: much would it cost to get these coins i suppose that's you know what's the minimum entry requirement sure. i think that's the important thing for quite a lot of private investors
2: sure well i mean it tends to people tend to think about one ounce coins i mean uh, you know those mm. uh, the, you know you kind of so the Krugerand, which was the first bullion coin launched uh, in the late 19. So that
0: will be what did you say? It was that's one, ounce. So that's one ounce.
2: So it's about nine hundred and fifty yeah, pounds at the moment. Okay. Well, that's the, that's the base value. Mm. You've then got your premiums to pay on top of that. So you're actually going to be looking nearer a thousand pounds
0: for like one coin. Yeah, for mm. one
2: coin of one ounce. And as I say, you know, you're going to be looking at markups on that, and then you're not going to get nine fifty back when you sell, because obviously the dealer then has to take a piece off you on the way out. There are bars, small bars, retail investment bars. Um, popular sizes there are half kilo and kilos. So you're then looking. Um, at around £25,000 for a kilo. What you uh, find there is that the spreads, the dealing spreads to buy or to sell, are better, uh, but not dramatically. And you still have the issue if you take this stuff home with you of where you're going to keep it, how you're going to insure it. If you have more than about £3,000, this is uh, research that we've done, if you have more than about £3,000 in gold at home, you really need to tell your insurance company. And they will say this is a high value asset, and therefore they might put you on a different tariff. Uh, they will probably ask that you install an insurance-rated safe. Now you're adding a lot more cost again. And the big issue with retail units, such as bar and coin, small bar and coin, is that you don't have a lot of liquidity. I mean, there's no liquidity in gold at the end of my garden. Um, You know, if you want to go and sell this stuff, you have to go and shop around again for a price, just as you do on the way in, of course. So that, you know, that can be an issue. Often gold coins and, and small bars can become a forever investment. There's a lot of emotional inertia as Mm -hmm. well about actually selling something which you've held at home. Um, Increasingly popular, of course, over the last 10 years since their launch have been ETFs, exchange traded (laughs) funds, either backed by gold or synthetically uh, created through the derivatives market so that you track the price. And they track the wholesale price very well. Um, Third option is then to actually own bullion but not at home and ideally to hold it in large bar format. If you think about the way the gold market works, it comes out of the ground, it gets refined, blah, 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 and it will end up in typically a 400-ounce, 12.5 kilo, good delivery bar. Now, good delivery is a system which is run from London, the London Bullion Market Association, picking up from the Bank of England, which used to be the centre of the world's gold market because we ruled the world, um, has a system of... Uh, rules and procedures, and then a list of refiners who can produce good delivery bars. Good delivery does what it says on the tin. Delivery is good. You don't need an assayer at your vault door to say, yes, this is is kosher stuff. Um, So... That's what Bullion Bolton enables you to do. There are some other companies Mm. who do the same thing. And that way, you're cutting out all of the fabrication costs of smaller units. I mean, you know, pretty much any gold product you can think of will come from one of these bars at some point. So that means you're adding costs at each stage. Because it's in professional storage, its quality and therefore its value is warranted by it not having gone into private circulation. And then you also, of course, benefit from liquidity because you're now in the most liquid, deepest market. The gold bullion market globally uh, is probably about the third or fourth largest currency cross.
0: If and like. if investors use your service, what's the minimum they can put in?
2: Well, I mean, the minimum side, the minimum deal size is one gram. Um, so, you know, that's, we're talking, you know, 30 pounds £35 pounds at the moment. And However, I mean,
0: how does that work? Because you're you buy larger sizes. Do you pool investors' money together to buy larger... Basically, other, yeah.
2: you own... And, and what's critical is that mm. you do own the metal, OK? You are not exposed to our credit as a business. It's not on our balance sheet. It belongs to the customers. And you own one gram in a large bar. Uh, English law basically got round to allowing this in the mid-1990s. You don't need to pre-ascertain or pre-identify, you know, exactly that lump which belongs to somebody if they're in a pool of metal, if they're undivided in bulk, as it's known. So our customers are getting the benefits of the wholesale market, but at very small quantities. Now, we tend to suggest that, yes, you can start from one gram, but there is a storage charge to pay. There's dealing costs as well. That's how we eat as a business. You you pay 0.5% to buy or to sell. Um, and then you pay a storage charge because what's critical when you own something at arm's length is that you do actually pay for storage because that is then evidential in court if there is ever a problem if you're paying for storage of something then quite clearly the court is more likely to agree that you own it yeah uh and that is done at four u.s dollars per month so at the moment annually that's about 35 pounds minimum with uh, a, l- a larger rate So the minimum is £35 a year for storage. The larger rate then is 12 basis points, 0.12%. So we're very much the cheapest uh, at making that available to private investors, both on dealing costs and on storage. We tend to suggest really an investment of £2,000 and above becomes efficient. Mm -hmm. Anything smaller than that, then that £35 a year charge can look a bit steep.
0: And how do your costs compare to, let's say, investing in a physical gold ETF
2: so, or physical, ETC, I should yeah, say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, the UK, uh, gold ETF market has a range of different products. Primarily, they're available from ETF securities, now part of Wisdom Tree. Um, and there's a range of costs that go with them. I mean, there are a couple of synthetic ETFs, ETCs, sorry, where you are actually just tracking the price and there isn't any physical gold involved. One of those costs 49 basis per year, which is actually quite steep. If you compare it to our charge of 12, for instance, uh, the cheapest is 0.25%, 25 25 basis points.
0: Is that the iShares Fund? That's the iShares Fund,
2: correct. What's Mm -hmm. interesting is, uh, you know, speaking to uh, institutional investors, often they do worry about some of, you know, if you look in the US, for instance, the very largest gold ETF, the GLD, that has an expense ratio annually of 40 basis points, 04 And, um, the largest ETF in the UK, the gold-backed ETF, is the ETFS physical gold. And that has an expense ratio of 39 basis. So what's interesting there is that's twice as large as the iShares, even though it's more expensive. And I think the issue, speaking to institutional investors often, is they worry about liquidity in, you know, there may Mm. be, you know, lower costs to be had, but they worry about liquidity in the fund. Um, and therefore maybe, you know, trading spreads and so on. So bullion vault is more efficient on a rolling basis, on an ongoing basis, than the iShares fund from about £14,000 upwards because we charge 12 basis points to larger investors. Uh, And we're more efficient than the ETFs physical gold fund from about £9,000.
0: Okay. Now, um, we've been talking about, um, I suppose, getting access to physical gold Um, how do these methods of getting exposed to gold compare to investing in the shares of gold mining companies, such as some funds do?
2: Um, Gold miners and gold are very, very different assets. Uh, I mean, I saw a note from somebody uh, last week saying that in Q1, three of the five worst-performing UK funds were actually gold mining funds. Uh, They were down 12 15% in the first quarter of 2018, whilst the gold price in sterling slipped about 2%. So you're getting very much more volatility. The problem for the mining equity is that they are equity. You therefore have management risk, you have credit exposure through their supply chain and so on. You have political risk, uh, risk environmental. uh, Regulation is getting very much tighter in many parts of the world. Um, And a lot of the miners are saddled with an awful lot of debt, which they accumulated at the top of the market. And prices where they currently are, they've done a lot of cutting back. There is a view that longer term this will actually be good for gold prices because, in fact, they haven't done enough exploration and development of future reserves. Um, So they're currently depleting what they have, having spent a lot of money on primarily digging on the stock market for gold by buying other smaller miners rather than actually going out and digging for new gold. So they're very different assets. You know, if you find a good gold mining equity uh, where costs against the market price of bullion are low, uh, where there isn't a lot of debt, then, yes, you can enjoy what a lot of people often think of as leverage to the gold price. Because if you think about it, you know, a miner has a lot of fixed costs. So if the price of bullion in the market, their end product, goes higher, well, their fixed costs don't. Not so much. They do, actually, because gold mining costs tend to track prices higher and lower. But as I say, industry-wide, it's a real problem for the gold miners that, as I say, they have all this debt. Um, and they, you know, they really have underperformed gold horribly since the financial crisis.
0: What about the fact that um, gold equities can do or potentially do two things that physical gold can't? One is pay dividends. Obviously, that's down to the discretion of the company. And secondly, equities are considered to be a way to outpace inflation under interest rates. Uh,
2: div- dividends on a gold mining share would be really nice. Um, that, um, Yeah, <laughs> a bit like a unicorn, really, in terms of proper dividends. Uh, mm-hmm. Gold mining equities cannot pay dividends very well at the moment. I mean, they, you know, okay. a lot of the large ones do, but, mm-hmm. I mean, they are minuscule um, as a yield because they have other more urgent issues, such as paying down debt and so on. So returns to shareholders have been miserable on gold mining equities. Uh, what has happened in the gold mining equity space is that basically the the multiples have come down very dramatically. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, gold mining shares would be on a multiple of 15. 20 times and i remember speaking to a, a executive from a copper mining company once complaining well, why are gold miners rated so much more highly than us i mean at the end of the day we're just churning out metal from the ground the market has come around to that view somewhat and has re-rated the gold mining equities so there are much lower uh, p e ratios now um so in terms of beating inflation. Yeah, potentially, if you, you know, if you see them as equity, but they are still underlying a gold equity. Um, so, you know, you're, there is, it is a way of looking at the gold market. It is a way of looking at getting exposure to a bull market, for instance. And, of course, there are opportunities within individual equities to say, well, actually, this is just a very well-run company um, whose share price I think is going to increase.
0: Thank you, Adrian. A really helpful explanation of the investment uses of gold. Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies Trust performed strongly up until 2012, when its long-standing manager, Susie Ripping retired. Since then, the trust has been through a number of manager changes and performance has not been good. But there are some reasons to believe that things could now get better. Taha, who now manages the trust?
3: So it's managed by a manager called Vinay Agawal, who's been working on the trust for about almost two years now. He's supported by Willie He who used to manage the trust. Uh, both of them have actually been working on the trust for several years and changed positions for entirely non-performance reasons. It's uh, it's more professional reasons. And, yeah, they've been they've been going at it and kind of trying to build on Susie's legacy.
0: OK. Now, you said they've been working on this trust for a number of years. Um, what's their wider experience? Uh,
3: so they, they blend quite well. So Wee Lee has experience of um, Asia-Pacific, whereas Vinay is more experienced in the Indian subcontinent. So the trust... Um, kind of <clears throat> so the trust exposure kind of shows that in the way it picks stocks but both of them blend together quite well they've both been at first stage to Asia for for several years so are well versed in the, the investment style that that fund house is known for.
0: Okay so how are they running the trust?
3: So a few things that have changed since Susie left is that um, and this is something that Vinay has done since he took over in 2016 is that they're taking things a bit more concentrated so what that means is they're taking bigger bets on the few amount of stocks which is a strategy that's generally quite unusual for a smaller company trust because what smaller company trusts tend to do is be very diversified among a lot of small companies so this is quite interesting but Vinay seems very convicted in his ideas a lot of those companies are in India as well so you can see where where his exposure is coming from.
0: Okay so um, what are the main areas then that the trust is allocated to?
3: As I said India is the biggest region with uh, just over 26% but then There are a lot of few other things as well. So more east countries like the Philippines and Sri Lanka. Um, These are countries that aren't generally seen in Asia-Pacific funds um, and they're not quite well represented in the index. What he doesn't have is a lot of China exposure. And uh, these are actually the reasons that explain why the trust has underperformed the index and its peers over several years.
0: But we have obviously got good reasons for allocating to these areas. So Is it likely to improve performance?
3: Uh, Well, um, so analysts and the managers think so. So basically, the reason why they've taken these decisions is that they're very fearful of very highly debted countries. And China and South Korea are two of the examples that they give. And they see lower debt levels in places like India, the Philippines and Lanka. And then when you combine that with the kind of global growth story that we've been seeing over the last 18 months or so, they're very positive on how their smaller company exposures will perform.
0: Okay, I mean, it sounds really promising, but what are the risks of this investment trust and what it invests in?
3: There are a few things that people have to consider, and one of them is what I alluded to in terms of the concentration. So unlike other smaller companies' trusts, there are very big bets in this portfolio. So while that can be quite good on the upside, it only takes a few companies for performance to really improve. The same is always true on the downside. It only takes a couple of mistakes for things to go really badly for this trust. That's definitely worth considering. The other thing is, it's, um, it's still on quite a high discount uh, to NAV. Now, this is one of the reasons why this could be a good entry point. The discount has come back from its high, but it's still quite high. And it's also very, very aligned to the global growth story. So any, any upset in kind of economic circumstances in the Asia-Pacific, then this will become a very different story.
0: Okay, not to mention the fact it's invested in smaller companies and some emerging markets, which are, as always, fairly high risk. Absolutely. Thank you, Taha. A really helpful update. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read more on the manager change to Investor Perpetual Enhanced Income and Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies Trust in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.
3: Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at?